Let's get on with our study today. We'll be in where we left off, 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 19. And we will also be trying to move into, actually chapter 20 is where we're going to pick it up. Because we moved into a portion of that last week. The title today, which is to anchor us in, I believe, the point that's coming out, certainly not the only point, but one that I was impressed with, and that would be to regret a vendetta, to regret a vendetta. A little bit of rhyme there for you. To regret a vendetta. Or if you meet a woman named Greta Vendetta, I ask you to repent. Or teach her the gospel quickly. <laughs> if there is anyone here named Greta Vendetta, please have mercy on me. Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask your blessings on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Vendetta is really what would have been known in the Old Testament times as a blood feud. And actually there was provision for God to address the wrong that a family would suffer when there was the loss of life, which would be adjudicated in a city known as the city of refuge. The one who found themselves potentially at the charge of being guilty for taking life, would be fleeing from one who was called the manslayer. In those days, there was provision that a family would defend its honor and there would be one appointed in that family to pursue what for them was the grievance of a loss based on an accident or an intentional slaying of a member of the family. Most of us have not had that experience, but the important part to remember here is that God was sensitive towards the needs of social justice, or better yet, what we would call civil solution from a godly perspective. Because he was the judge, he would allow one coming into the city to find refuge and be protected, to have his case heard, as the manslayer would be on his heels, and to take him out before he could get to the city of refuge. If he were able to do that, he would have solved the blood feud between his family suffering loss, he being appointed to take initiative to justify that taking of another life. So God made provision. The provision would work remarkably well, for in the city of refuge, that person that fled there would have the right to have his case heard and to be able to have it weighed out in the balance of prayer and of, I guess what you would say, conscience, to also be able to hear the other side of the story and weigh things out 
at times the person that fled to the city of refuge would be then constrained. There was a provision in which that person that fled to be spared from the manslayer would be spared, but he would have to live his life indefinitely in that city, never being permitted to leave that place. Kind of sounds like a penitentiary with benefits. How does that relate to where we're at today? Well, David's inheriting again what has been given to him by God, and it has some really messy, bloody things that he has to deal with as he has been dealing with it. Because he has, in particular, a general that he demoted as he put in place someone from the other side. Actually, as you recall, Emasa was his name, and he was the general under his son, Absalom. It doesn't make sense how David would appoint one who was the general of his rebellious son, Absalom, who was trying to steal his kingdom, and appoint him in lieu of Joab, who had been with him from the very, very early days of basically knowing that he was the king and fleeing from Saul with his mighty men. Joab would have been one of them. Joab, as you recall, also was one who was a, it would be a nephew of David, because David's sister had three sons. And so that would have been something that, again, would have been interesting in and of itself. Very likely, if not a younger relative, an older and more vital relative. So we don't really know. It fades a little bit there. The point being made is that David's situation has been complicated by now another rebellious activity. And that person was already defined last week as Sheba. And so Sheba has already tooted his horn and has now committed an act of rebellion, inciting a majority in his, at least, origins of the nation to follow him. But we do see that the Lord spared the entire nation from following Sheba. And when Sheba realizes he doesn't have the strength that he thought he had, he's on the run. And that's where we picked it up. He's on the run. David says he needs to be dealt with, and he needs to be dealt with because if he's not, he will be worse in what Absalom tried to do. He will have double the opportunity to come against God's kingdom and God's house. So we also looked at that picture saying that there is a time's up in which the characters in what we would say the play of life, the foils, the evil uh, villains, they will be dealt with by God. It won't be a manslayer after them. It will be a righteous God who rectifies, clears the slate, and changes things with regard to the overthrow of his kingdom. So let's go ahead and pick it up where approximately we left off to see its unfolding. And as we do so, remember that this also plays in to principles that Jesus taught concerning what anger in the heart means. 
and that to be angry it as equated as murder. Joab right now, as you recall, just before we launch into this, has already been guilty of taking out Abner, who was Saul's general. And Abner was the one who brokered actually peace between David, who was king in Hebron, and when Saul's demise had met its finality, God was trying to pull the nation together. And so Abner stepped forward from a position in which he was against David because of Saul, but now he was for David, and by his recommendation, all of Israel was going to assemble and become bone and flesh to David. Quite a brokering, quite a man to have a resignation when in fact it could have meant for him a judgment. But he was taken out by Joab maliciously, cunningly, quite beyond anything he expected. Joab right now would be found in this passage of scripture from history as a very conniving, prideful, arrogant man whose only intention was to do what was good for his outcome not really for David at all. And so in picking this up, Abishai has been dispatched. Sheba now is on the run. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. Job's men, this is chapter 20, with the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men went out after him. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So again, the redundancy of his name is simply that we do not forget who he is and where he's going and who's following him. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasah came before them. Now Joab was dressed, notice this, in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. So we see one that obviously is prepared for warfare, for battle. This is Joab. It's not that what he has on would be a surprise to us. It's what he's going to do with what he has on that comes as a surprise to an unlikely person. That's Amasar. Amasar right now, having delayed and to the urgency of David, just dismissed, not fired, just dismissed, because he couldn't get certain dispatches ready, David sent out Joab and the others. As a result of that, Joab takes into position himself going, wow, this feels good. This is an awesome place to be again. I'm in command. I'm ahead of the guy that took my spot. And it shows you that what Joab is guilty of once again is premeditative murder. In other words, he doesn't like Amasah. He understands that Amasah was indeed responsible for bolstering Absalom. Joab already premeditatedly took Absalom out. And though we know that God had appointed disaster to fall upon Absalom, it does not necessarily mean to the point of murder just that he would not satisfy his takeover of Jerusalem. He would not displace his father. Joab, remember, had been 
precautioned to not do harm to Absalom. But in fact, he did. And it was seemingly with malice and intention. And even though he did it seemingly in the name of the Lord and for David, it does show you that his heart was very easily and cunningly able to dismiss the sacredness of life to justify himself in his pursuit of position. So Joab right now, as the story unfolds, is coming face to face with Amasah, who would be, if you would, in his mind, his nemesis. In other words, the guy that took his spot, the bad guy, when in fact, Amasah was an incredible ambassador. As a result of what Amasah had done, brokering peace between those who had followed Absalom, he was actually a great asset to David pulling his kingdom together. But here we go with Joab as he meets with them. This sword falls out. Joab said to Amasah, are you in health? What a line. Well, I'm going to change that. Are you in health? He's basically plying him or catching him off guard. Amasah seems to not be aware of what had happened with the clanking of this sword. But the question would seemingly put him off guard. And it seems to be effectual. Ah, my brother, are you in good health? I care about you. Ah, my brother, blood, blood brother. Men of the same talents and gifts, of the same service. It's what very often can be cited as a tactic of the enemy to persuade us, to help us kind of just change our opinion about things and culture and things that he wants us to have our guard dropped over. But it says, Job, in this question, concerning his health, concerning his salutation of being a brother. Joab took Amasah by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. And Amasah, verse 10, did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bikri. The story could conclude here based on the fact of understanding what was achieved. This is exactly and precisely what Joab wanted to do. Amasah was on David's team. Joab was on David's team. Why were they not doing the same thing together in strength as opposed to a divisive, calculated effort to take Amasah out? Well, we could call that division. And we could call that certainly assured based on the consequence. But notice this. It does indicate that his hand reaches to Amasa's beard, which again would not have been Hebrew at all. There's nothing that we see in the scriptures in which Hebrew men, in greeting one another, grab each other's beard to bestow a fraternal kiss that alone would have said something's weird about this. The other is that 
Joab was not according to what we know in scriptures left-handed. There was only one tribe that actually had been noted for that. That was the tribe of Benjamin. They tended to be left-handers. And being left-handers means that your opponent in warfare would not necessarily expect you to weapon them with a hand they very seldom seen used. It was usually a protected hand. And it was protected in the event that the right hand took a blow, the left hand could be employed. And so this means that this was very calculated. It was to manipulate Amasah to be able to put him off guard and to take advantage of thrusting him. The description I realize is graphic, but it's important to understand the sinister character of Joab right now. He intended to put Amasah on show and to make him feel pain as long as pain could be felt before he expired. It was a thrust and very likely a cut up. For that to have happened, according to the scriptures, it would have been malicious. He didn't strike him again because of the fact that Amasah would live long enough to be in very deep pain. And the idea there, too, is that those who even for a moment questioned Joab would no longer have presence or courage to question what he had done. It's kind of the technique that many of the Middle Eastern countries that we know of right now have done in Afghanistan, the Taliban, the ones as well who were in Iraq. They would publicize the torture of both citizens as well as military people. And the idea there in publicizing it was to create and provoke enough fear that no one would challenge them. It worked for a season. They're back at it again from what news reporting is coming through. And so this was a technique right now in which any that would question Joab's relevancy would be by fear alone, not wanting to engage him. It says that as a result of this, one of Joab's men stood near Amasah, this is verse 11, and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. David's name is being employed and his general, former general, is being paired up with him so that there would be very little to question. Very often in the church, as you have heard and probably have experienced, the name of the Lord is paired up with a variety of people to give those individuals a little bit of a leap, a little bit of a head start, a little bit of a persuasive voicing on what they may be doing, which is divisive. We're seeing that really quite well played out in the media today. But what it means is, is that some people, very similar to Joab, are malicious with their tongues. And the tongue can be likened to a sword as well as a fire. It destroys. The word of God can be likened as a sword, the sword of the spirit. It can be able to cut both deeply 
and both ways. And yet, what is its intention for? It's to take on enemies of God, not brothers and sisters of God. There are pictures in here. Again, if you camp on the word that has been used, vendetta, it means a blood feud. It implies an anger that is unrelenting. It implies that as a result of holding grudge, you will pursue until you conquer. But the point being made here, too, that we will see, not on these pages yet, is that Job does not get away with it long term. There will be a day of reckoning for his recklessness because he had no intention of changing. And ultimately, the person that he was and the malicious judgment that he rendered to what we would say at least two innocent men and one who was appealed to by his king whom he served, he chose not to. His whole life was played out in basically a facade of feigning to be loyal to the king, but violating everything that the king had told him to do. Broker peace with Abner. Broker peace with Amasah. Be peaceful towards my son, the rebel, Absalom. And in all three of those circumstances, he refused. So that's a hard-hearted person. And it's a person right now that though he will have some claim to victory and success, does it mean anything in the long run as far as the eternal? And the answer would be not at all. It's a hard life when you're living by always exalting yourself and taking people out in the process of repositioning. Jesus would say that actually the highest position a man could take is really on your knees, washing feet, serving one another. The highest position is going to the lowest position. And so Joab doesn't learn that. That would be frustrating to somebody who administratively is a king. And we ask ourselves, how in the world with the power that God gave David would he have such patience with such a man? And what we then have to say, wow, that sounds a lot like God. God was a lot like David was to Joab in terms of knowing what he was doing, but allowing him one more day of mercy, one more day of patience, one more day of grace. Will he change? Will he turn? He is effective, but he's hurting people in the process. Who do I yield to? And that's one of the things that's remarkable about God is that in the process, people do get hurt. Tears are sown, but for those who sow the tears, equated as seed, they will reap a harvest. God's very aware of what provokes the tears. Who's responsible for breaking you or me at given moments of time? And he's faithful. There is fruit that will come from the sowing of tears. But what happens then to the Joabs? And what happens to us when we know who they are? 
What's our disposition towards the Joabs? I will be honest and to tell you that my patience isn't like God's patience. I find myself at times highly biased, wanting to make an adjudication towards someone who has offended me greatly, and I want it because ultimately it will make me feel better when they have been removed from influencing my life. Maybe I'm tired of sowing the seed of tears. Or maybe I feel my harvest was actually more tares than wheat and fruit. But see, those are feelings. And that's what I cannot use to ever justify by what means I will intend to do something to someone because of how it is I've been treated by them. That requires a great discipline. Jesus lived on his earthly tenure teaching that discipline in the way that he walked. Do you realize that by just a word, by just one word, he could have judged any person that would have dared to contradict him, that would have shown disrespect towards him, that would have mocked him. Talk about power that was constrained. Jesus was the example of God under great constraint. Why? Because of great love. Job has no love. There's no love actually that he has for David. There's no love actually that he has for God. He's in love with power. His desire is exclusively to bed his future for luxury. And he, in contempt of the heart of David, takes out good people. That David, as an ambassador of peace, opted to show grace and mercy towards. When we have the opportunity to show grace, the scriptures are very clear that that is done when mercy is allowed to triumph over judgment. When mercy is allowed to triumph over judgment, what we think about someone that actually may be in many parts accurate, but what we think about the person rather than what God thinks about the person, that needs to change. I appreciate, again, the closing words of that song. God never changes, but he changes me. He changes my heart. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses the issue of anger. And he says that even names that you give to someone, repudiating any opportunity of a redemptive plan of God for their life is as if you have spoken the curse towards them. And he says, you cannot do that. To speak or be angry towards your brother or your sister, you cannot do that. For anger, according to Jesus, would be equated as murder, as Joab is guilty of. And sometimes what we do is we say, I may not be able to do much about them now, but I will make them languish. I will make it so miserable for them that any who see them will fear me of getting in my way. 
In essence, Emesa was used simply for that purpose. We see that as this particular individual, one of Joab's men, obviously, says, hey, if you're for David and Joab, then follow us. Don't be thinking about anything else than following us. We're right. And you might be seeing that there's an illusion here, not an illusion, but it is alluding to a truth within the church, that the church in times right now in cultural conflict with the world system, we have our own means of developing a hatred. But we're to hate sin, but how can we hate sin and not hate the sinner, the one committing the sin? That's a trick. It is for us. But it's actually an act of God to allow us to do what? It. To be able to take the sin that God hates, but to be able to not judge the sinner whom he loves. The only way is to have the love of God who changes not. The God who says that I would that none should perish means that. I don't want them to perish. I want them to flourish. I want them to have the opportunity that I gave you. So whether you're in your early teens, whether you are in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, wherever the Lord privileges you to be vital right now in your strength, the Lord would say, are you weak though? Are you weak in a manner that actually is my meekness coming through you? Or are you weak because of the burden of being now too strong? Too strong towards somebody. Not strong for them, but towards them. You have a strength in pride, a position that you want, a vendetta that you will regret. Time to change. That's what the Lord would challenge all of us in the scripture. Even as Joab goes about seemingly successful, he will not have a successful outcome. And one of the things that we need to understand with regard to the blood feud that does exist in the church at times is that you may not see the result of the patient work of God in somebody's life, but they will be reminded of your patient love for them, your ability to tolerate the intolerable. God always reminds the person of what it was they once were like but are no longer, and he reminds them of the people that love them in spite of how they behaved and what they did. Paul was reminded in Acts chapter 9 of what he once was. In fact, he had to go beyond the reputation that he had earned as being just as calculated, just as venomous, just as murderous as Joab. He took and sanctioned innocent life because that innocent life was contrary to his lawful disposition. He felt he knew God better than those who actually knew God believably the best. And so he set out with his power and authority to take lives and to ruin families and to take the church out. 
God can take Joab's. The question is, will Joab's allow themselves to be taken by God? Will they be turned? And if God's using us, will will we be the instruments by which that turning indeed makes the difference between a Saul of Tarsus or a Paul, the apostle? He now is establishing himself. He's in pursuit of Sheba. That's fine. He's doing what he knows needs to be done. It's just that in the process, he's doing things very wrong. And so when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Emesah from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. And so what we see here, too, is a picture that God doesn't allow even those who have been abused and misused, those who are bloodied in the consequence of bad behavior, dispositions beyond display for very long. I know this sounds kind of strange, but basically as a result of people that have had those kinds of moments, And even though we would say no more can they offer, God does come in to clean up that situation. That's really what you see here. The reason being is that it's a handicap when the person that has been killed by another, bloodied in the feud, when they become the sole focus rather than the God, who wants to bring perspective, then God has a way of being able to tend that consequence to give what? Light and hope. There has to be an advancing. These people here are all stalled at this bloody mess. There has to be an advancing. We have to advance beyond the bloodletting. Life moves forward. We are not to be someone that just grieves at the moment in agony and never leaves it. We allow ourselves to be provoked. We allow ourselves to be fearful of the next step that we're to take. That is not what the believer is called to do. So he's removed, and the pursuit of Sheba continues. They went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth, Mekah, and all the Barites, and so in verse 14, they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. Verse 15, then they came and besieged him and Abel of Beth Mecca, and they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. They now are attacking a city to get to a man. The man, Sheba, went into the city to find his solace. Unfortunately, he didn't go to what would be called a city of refuge. He just went to a city in which the citizenry there were innocent. We're going to see a woman that comes into the scene to voice innocence and to say, what are you tearing down our city for? What purpose is this? Notice what happens here. So remember, they're close now to just taking down this city. A wise woman in verse 16 cried out from the city, Here, here, please say to Joab, come nearby. What may I speak with you? 
When he had come near her, the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. So she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying, They shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. This is a picture of basically settling the difference with conversation and respect. Not with the sword, but with a mutual act of conscious listening and coming to terms with the difference in which the feud needs to stop. The city was known for taking care of business in a peaceable, godly resignation. The woman brings that to his attention. I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. That's what we need to say. I am among the peaceable and faithful within this church, within God's work. Maybe people have known me for something else earlier on, but I presently am to be known as this person, peaceable and faithful. And so, as she speaks, you seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel? Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? She's talking very tough to a very tough guy. She's challenged him on what his disposition should be, how she is, what the city is known for, but she's telling him to re-examine who he is and what he is willing to do. Joab answered and said, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bikri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. And then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bikri, and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. Some may say, what is her role? Doesn't sound like she did much different than what Joab had done to Amasa. There is a difference, though. The difference is that in this city, she brokered for peace and she brokered to be faithful to her citizenry. And this was in that time, at that place, an adjudication on a criminal. All Joab needed to say is this man incited rebellion against the king. I have been dispatched to get him. In the process of getting him, if I have to, I take this city down. The woman, seeing that that is unnecessary, literally puts herself between what is the crisis of her city and the need to have a judgment imposed upon a criminal. It's actually what you would call a civil court being conducted by a community. Though he would have done better to have run to a city of refuge 
in which his case would have been heard, but probably the examination would have proven you're judged or you'll never leave this city again. He ran to a city in which God allowed an adjudication to take place. And notice this, it wasn't by the hand of Joab. In this case, he simply moves back to being a general. It doesn't change what he had done. It doesn't justify how he's been. It's just telling you God's able to divide what a man or woman may do, but what they still need great improvement on and change, or a radical, if you would, surgical component part of their heart just removed. And so this woman actually becomes the one who, because of her disposition and her giftings in brokering, ends the judgment. Joab blows the trumpet, which means it's a victor's trumpet. The troops regather and they return. And the story concludes. But it also tells us what David then goes about doing, which is also what we need to go about doing. And it says this, Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehoda, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was the recorder. Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jerite, was chief minister under David. What a stark closure to such a contemptuous chapter. Bloody. It tells us this. There are episodes in our life that simply need to be just that, episodes. But there's a responsibility to administrate forward thinking and change and putting people in good positions. Was Joab in the best position? It would appear that he was allowed to remain in a position. It's interesting how God continues to show himself gracious when any of us would say, but they don't deserve it, or I never deserved it. And that's the point about grace. We don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. Joab certainly didn't deserve it. But his just deserts will come in the chapters that are soon to be disclosed. He will not get away with it. And so the lesson is, we will never get away with the things that are perpetuating in us things contrary to the disposition of God. We've got to change. He doesn't. He's immutable. What he wants us to know is that in his patience, he gives every person an opportunity to change and to change in a manner that brings him glory. Even if it's gory, even if we say, you're kidding me. I got to listen to that guy teach. Do you know what he did when he was 20? Do you know what he did when he was 30? God knows what he did. God knows what Paul did. God knows what Peter did. God knows. But we need to know that God loves. It's his chief attribute of all of them. And from love, the fruit is produced by the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Why is that at the last? 
because it's probably the first place that God's going to begin a work in everybody's life. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Self-control, of course, that's what I need, Lord. I'm out of control because I have no self-control because I'm not allowing you to control myself. I'm controlling my destiny. I want it my way. I want to put people in this category, and I want to put people in that category, and I've got a sword, and I want to use it for my offense, not my defense. So the point being made, to simply close this off, is though it may be for some of you a blood-fused, but it may be for others simply a prolonged and bitter exchange with somebody. The Lord would say on both accounts, consider it put on my account. I died for that person. I don't think about them the way that you do. So think like I do towards them. And you think about making the first change, not the last change. You take initiative for ultimately the change, which God says he'll do. We need to not be divided within the church. Prayerfully, we ought not be divided as a nation, but we can pray as a church. God's doing great things within all of our lives, and we need to acknowledge that beautiful, redemptive work of God.